0: make a statement, or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
1: So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins, and that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Dr. Keith Somerville is a professor and member of the Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. If you asked Keith what and who he is, his heart is journalism. He recently authored a paper called Soap Operas Will Not Wash Wildlife, in which given his background in working for the BBC for 20 years, covering human conflicts in Africa, he knows what is pushing the anthropomorphizing of wildlife for these wildlife documentaries. And it's the engagement of emotion through journalism. That engagement leads to the identification that humans, or any perceived human threat, which includes hunting, to be an atrocious act on the destruction of these quote unquote families of wildlife. I can almost guarantee you, by the end, your eyes will be open to a whole new world. That you never ever realized enjoy
2: your problem will be shutting me up <laughs> rather than the opposite
1: well i smash the record button because typically the best stuff comes out right in the beginning when people are starting to banter with one another so <laughs> uh, so
2: exactly you are in london or you're somewhere else i'm right on the northern edge of london i cross the road and i'm in hartfordshire area called harrow um as sort of far out on the Northwest as you can get within sight of Wembley stadium. If I climb a hill up behind the house, I can see this great big arch of Wembley stadium. And I mean, ideally I wouldn't be living in London, but I'm, I'm stuck here for the time. Sure, being.
1: Sure. Well, let's get the most important question out of the way. Uh, which English premier league soccer team do you support? I don't. Okay. We
2: would I afford- used to support Manchester United. Well, it's a good thing you don't support them any longer. No, no, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> rugby, rugby supporter and former rugby player. So I'm interested in rugby. So I support the, the London-based team called Harlequins.
1: Excellent, 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 excellent. Well, I'm a big, uh, you know, soccer's my passion. I've been a Liverpool fan since I was four years old. And um, <laughs> They've broken my heart ever since, except for last year. So. The, um, before I go any further, uh, since I always do a terrible job of introducing people, um, you clearly have as cool of an accent as I do, maybe cooler. Um, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Keith, and, uh, and sort of your, your, your day job?
2: Okay. I'm Professor Keith Somerville. I teach at the Centre for Journalism at the University of Kent, not unfortunately the lovely Canterbury campus, but on the old British naval dockyard at Chatham.
1: Wow.
2: I was a journalist with the BBC for 28 years, mainly radio, mainly BBC World Service, covering Africa in particular. And while doing that, not only did I use every opportunity to go out and see wildlife, I made programs, for example, in Botswana on conservation issues, and I became fairly clued up on human wildlife issues. When I moved into academia, I stuck with Africa at first, looking at issues like uh, media coverage of Africa. And then gradually, through my other main African interest in military conflicts, which I've written books about, I picked up on the ivory insurgency narrative Mm -hmm. that ivory was being used particularly by al-shabab to fund their insurgency and i began to look into that in great detail and this ended up as my book ivory power and poaching in africa and through that i became a member of the Durrell institute of conservation and ecology at kent university uh, a fellow of the zoological society of london And I'm also a senior research fellow of the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. And I now research almost solely into human-animal conflict and coexistence, mainly in Africa.
1: So, Keith, would it be a fair statement to say that there is no human-wildlife conflict in Africa?
2: Oh, there's plenty of it. I mean, it's a strange thing. People have lived alongside animals in Africa ever since people evolved. There's a strange co-evolution, for example, of people, humans, and lions. So where the, the Leakey family, the famous Louis Leakey, Mary Leakey, were excavating in places like Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, in the period where they were beginning to find the early pre-human hominids Australopithecus, they were also finding from the same period lion bones, bones of the ancestors of the modern African lion. And they, in a strange way, did co-evolve because they both benefited from the growth in big savanna areas in mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. As the climate changed, as volcanic activity laid down very, very fertile lava-based soils, you got the rich grasslands that you now still see in the Serengeti and Masai Mara. And it was that that, they, that people believe, encouraged our ancestors to come down from the trees and become bipedal savanna dwellers and to go from omnivorous tree dwellers who would eat small animals, birds, eggs, things like that, along with fruits and vegetable matter, to hunting much more and scavenging and competing with lions for carcasses, being part of the carnival guild as lions were developing and becoming the apex mm-hmm. mammalian predator in savannah regions. Sure. So they were in coexistence, but they were also in competition And of course, conflict. And early early on the conflict was more humans or early humans, Mm -hmm. Australopithecines, defending themselves against predation by lions and also by hyenas, which were co-evolving as well. And then gradually as humans became more advanced because you'd weapons, had fire, they became more of a threat to lions, hyenas, leopards, cheetahs, than lions and hyenas in particular had been to early hominids
1: yeah yeah Keith let me ask you a question obviously um this is a a hunting related podcast hunting related brand uh you know conveying our our mission in life is to convey the truth around hunting Uh, do
2: you hunt I hunt as part of a biodiversity project okay in an area uh, a sort of formerly very very beautifully wooded area called the Chilterns okay. which is going out from London north of Reading near High Wycombe and going out towards Oxford so I'm a fully um, qualified deer manager okay perfect I, I have my advanced Deer Certificate from the British Deer Society yep. and I manage a couple of small areas of woodland formerly for a thing called the Chilton Woodland Project which is, was set up to re-establish old broadleaf woodland that has been chopped down at times and to encourage, re- encourage greater biodiversity. That unfortunately has fallen prey to COVID and the funding isn't there but i still work in the two woods assisting the owners of those woods to maintain greater biodiversity so i'm keeping down numbers of the the alien deer species in britain the muntjac deer which is now possibly the most widespread and numerous deer species there could be could be i hasten to add it's it's a very rough estimate, between 600,000 and a million of them now. Wow. Um, starting from maybe 100 deer that in the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s escaped from private collections. I mean, we even have them in Harrow. I've seen them at the end of my road, running down the main road, which often has very heavy traffic, and you see them dead on the roadside. Right. And they're a real, a real menace in woodlands because they they prevent the growth and maintenance of undergrowth within a wood so the one of the woods that I I look after when I first started about eight years ago in that wood you could see in summer from one end of the wood to the other I mean it's not a huge wood but you could if you lay down just look hardly any undergrowth at all and what undergrowth there was was sort of unpalatable plants that nothing much Essentially, a biological desert. Yeah, the ground nesting birds had all disappeared. They used to have nightingales there. They're no longer there. They used to have a lot of wrens and small birds like that. The wrens are gradually coming back. And they had a lot of hares. Well, thankfully, the hares are coming back because the undergrowth is coming back because I keep, I'm not there to get rid of the deer. I'm there to manage the numbers and to manage the biodiversity. And I will also manage the numbers of roe deer which are gradually increasing because of course in britain we have no natural wild predators left that would take deer Mm -hmm. a fox might an outside chance take a young muntjac fawn but it's not going to take an adult deer or even you know a, a fawn of a muntjac that's you know a month two months old And so we got rid of the wolves, we got rid of the lynx, we got rid of the bear, and so they just expand. And the main main cause of death of of some species of deer is road accidents, they just get killed crossing roads. And surprisingly, despite how many there are, an encouragement from even from people like the RSPB, the the bird charity, Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, they're quite keen on keeping deer numbers down because obviously they want to encourage ground nesting birds. But despite that, and despite a reasonable level of recreational stalking and culling on big estates and on forestry commission land, people in Britain don't eat that much venison. And the venison they do eat is often imported, say from New Zealand, right. where they cull right. very heavily. And it's weird. It's weird. If if I cull a roe deer, maybe after growlicking, skinning everything, there's perhaps thirty pound of meat on it, mm-hmm. if you're lucky. I can't sell that to a game butcher for anything more than about twenty pound. Wow. And you know the petrol bullets. Yeah, I heard the I heard the
1: venison prices have gone absolutely into the tank. Oh, and COVID has sent
2: them diving down because of course people would have aren't thought going it out. It was to
1: the, the opposite. You know, they would have been like, now I want to source my own food. Now I want to source my now's the opportunity
2: yeah. to Yeah, it's weird. But then you have that other COVID effect that whether or not it is finally absolutely proved that COVID jumped in mm. Chinese markets from some wild species into humans it may well have done it may not have done that I think with some people is discouraging them from eating wild-caught food they don't seem to realize actually that a lot of wild well certainly venison low cholesterol low fat level very ethically sourced meat if it is properly hunted strange
1: (laughs) right Well, I want to set the scene, because now that everyone knows you and knows your background and knows sort of how you approach things, uh, that you are a hunter, that you understand why you hunt, that you understand that you're doing it for reasons for improving biodiversity, improving conservation of landscapes, uh, that you worked for the BBC as a journalist for 20 years. Uh, Let me set the the, the scene that you are now doing your deer stalking management and lo and behold there is a small muntjac family that has been named sally bruce and john and they've been followed by the local you know facebook nature lovers group and they've been taking pictures of their fawns growing and they've been showing the emotional attachment of the mother to the baby and the father protecting the mother from other bucks because, you know, he wants to be protective and whatnot. And and Dr. Somerville comes along and takes out dad. And there is this uproar that you have now split this monogamous uh, pairing of that is, you know, they're in love and now she's sad and she's going to Absolutely, you know, her heart is broken. She's never going to find another lover. Uh, You know, I'm setting the scene here because the paper that I reached out to you on that you wrote was called Soap Operas Will Not Wash for Wildlife. And this is what we are up against. What I just described is what's happening in Africa all the time. It may not just be in Africa, it may be elsewhere, but Africa seems to be the place that these emotive anthropomorphized relationships are being placed on wildlife. And because of such, we have things like Cecil the lion occurring. We have foot trekker the elephant occurring. We have all these things. And so you are the man. When it comes to understanding the... I, I want to understand from your perspective, and I think it's fairly easy, but I'd like you to explain it. This, this thing about soap operas, and one, is it good for wildlife or not? I know I said a lot there, but I wanted to set the scene.
2: I don't think the soap opera approach and this excessive focus on individuals or on trying to construct human-like families is good. It creates an idea in people's minds and people in modern industrial societies in particular are increasingly distanced from nature and wildlife. Many people will only get their experience of wildlife, particularly, obviously, African wildlife, because not everyone can afford to go there, not everyone wants to go there, but they may still be interested, and they will get their concept of wildlife from documentaries. Now, there's always been, and it goes right back to, oh, 1910, possibly even slightly before that with the first movie pictures, of movie makers, filmmakers filming wildlife, but doing it in such a way that they make it more sensational than it is. And so, for example, you had when Theodore Roosevelt went on his safari in Africa after being president of the United States, he had film crews with him. Now, That film didn't make a huge impact, but later films did. And they made their impact by either concentrating on a species, even concentrating on a particular animal, or concentrating on the people making the film. So you had the famous husband and wife duo, Martin and Osa Johnson, who made lots of films, but their films were highly sensationalised. And it gradually developed the the rise of the Disney Corporation, where Disney films about wildlife were often very, very <laughs> sensational in the extreme, right. and completely lied. the famous i, I don 't know if you know about the famous lemming film no. The idea, have you, have you have you heard the expression to, to be like a lemming, something yeah, suicidal absolutely. and crazy? Absolutely. Well, it comes from a film that was made and I think distributed by Disney that purported to show lemmings throwing themselves off a cliff. I would
1: say that 95% of the population that hears about a lemming knows that lemmings throw themselves
2: off cliffs. Well, they don't. And the film was a total fake. <laughs> Absolute total fake. There's a very, very, very good um, book by um, an American academic called Millman, where he talks about this and the, and the level of faking of films. And that was a very, very famous one, but it got a huge audience. And you got that whole series of, of Disney's World of Adventure, I think it was called. And they even at one stage, and I think they still have zoo-like theme, theme parks that will link to to films they're putting out. So you always had that side, but then you did get a more informative side that developed in the 50s and 60s. But over the, I would say over the last 30 years, it has become much more competitive. Yep. And therefore filmmakers aren't just thinking, right, which animals are people gonna be interested in How can we present that animal so people will watch it? They are thinking in terms of soap operas. So I don't know if you've come across it. There was a long-running series on the BBC called Big Cat Diary. Yep. Set in Masai Mara. Yep. And And they had different, they had actually different
1: cat families, if I remember, families, quote-unquote, air quotes like a cheetah family, a lion family, a leopard family, and they were all interacting, right? As
2: if they were members of society. Yes. And it was filmed and cut into half hour episodes that went out at the traditional soap opera time of TV <laughs> in the evening. So oh on the On commercial television, you'd have this long-running northern soap opera called Coronation Street. They had a farm-based one, I think, in Yorkshire called Emmerdale. BBC have the horrendous East Enders, supposedly set in the east east end of London. And then you have Big Cat Diary set in the Masai Mara. And I know one of the presenters, Jonathan Scott, the wildlife artist and photographer and writer. And... In his book, Big Cat Man, because he became particularly famous through that, having before that written very good books on the marsh lions of the, Masai, the, the marsh in Masai Mara, yep. he wrote in his book that there was a constant push by the producers for them to be more emotional, to be more oh. emotive when they describe something. And I interviewed one of the producers of the series, Colin Jackson, and he said, We were going out at soap opera time. We had to make every episode like a soap opera. And every episode had to end on a note of jeopardy, of danger, Mm. usually involving a cub. He said, we never falsified anything. There was no faking of stuff. But we would storyboard everything, like documentary makers and even drama makers you have a storyboard that you work to and the storyboard would involve a lot of jeopardy so right at the end and I do remember the ones with the cheetah cub that went missing and then at the beginning of the next episode turned up again and then when one of the cheetahs died it was like you know a national mourning, um (laughs) making it like a soap opera and really dragging people in and so you had the charismatic three big cat families presented like families. I mean, nothing. There were, there were no lies written into the script, but you can angle scripts in certain ways that you present it like a family mm-hmm. and in sort of assign human values or human emotions. Now, you can't totally get comparisons of animals and humans out of documentaries because that would be unrealistic we all occupy the same environment but over anthropomorphizing i think becomes dangerous and the huge stress on individual animals and individual species particularly charismatic ones over others so i've just written had published a book on humans and hyenas I have a particular interest and liking for hyenas but they're always the filthy bad guys not just in Lion King but also in BBC documentaries so in Big Cat Diary never any examination of the family life of the hyena which actually in many ways have a far more admirable social setup than lions do you don't get hyena males coming into a new clan and killing all the the hyena cubs for example as you do with male lions mm-hmm. but they were always evil and as they are in the lion king and in the Dynasty series about which was the center of the the academic paper soap operas don't wash hyenas are the bad guys they're the mm-hmm. bad guys in the wild dog episode and in the lion episode and again presented they are presented in a very bad light and in a very very narrow way and that's bad. And the stress on individuals, I think, is why you got that massive outcry. And I wrote a separate academic paper on it, on, I think it was horrible pun, the pride and prejudice of the British media, the Cecil the Lion story. Yep, I read that. Page. All about the way that was covered and the way that the stress on an individual animal and the way... <sighs> the way that its life was presented as though it was a, a human family. Mm-hmm. And somehow this was a particularly admirable and famous life. Right. Well, being a journalist with a background in Africa, I talked to lots of Zimbabwean journalists at the time and said, is this running big in your newspapers? Is the, the Herald, the Chronicle, whatever, covering it? And they said, no, people in Zimbabwe would just think That's another lion. And why did they call it Cecil after Cecil Rhodes? But but there you go. And and even I know well the people who are running the research project that involves Cecil. And if you read, there's a very good paper written by Professor David Macdonald, the head of Wild Crew, the head of the whole project, where he basically says he doesn't like hunting, he doesn't like (laughs) hunting, But if you take trophy hunting away just like that, with no sustainable alternative, you do more damage than keeping it there. And that was totally ignored. Because throughout the Cecil the Lion Ferrari, the media concentrated absolutely on animal rights and other groups who were looking in a very narrow sense of how can somebody kill this magnificent lion.
1: And so let me ask this question. Let me pause you for a second there because this ties into exactly what you were talking about from the soap opera perspective is I want to really understand the why. And I, I think I know the answer because uh, it's to me, it's pretty clear. So why would the media focus all on the animal rights components of Cecil the lion's death, ignore the wild crew, ignore the fact that on the ground, people are saying, well, that's just another lion. Uh, When it comes to the dynasties, why are they focusing on these individuals with big cats and lions and cheetahs and and, and, and leopards? And sort of, as you say, bastardizing the hyena.
2: Like, why do you think that those things are happening? It's very much part of a journalistic practice. Now, as I say, I had 28 years with the BBC, a lot of it running live news programmes, editing them, deciding what goes in the programmes, and you're constantly thinking about your audience. Now, in a way, I was lucky, because I worked for the World Service, so our audience was global. Mm -hmm. And at different times of day, we'd have, say, most of our audience in South Asia or most of our audience in Africa, And we had to think of the audience in a very, very broad sense. So there wasn't one single audience. But when you're broadcasting TV, radio, or doing websites, or publishing newspapers, aimed at a particular audience, Say the British audience, which is what I concentrated on when I looked at Cecil, and also when we looked at dynasties, it was mainly this. We watched it when it went out to British audiences, and I'm sure it's gone out worldwide, been syndicated because the BBC wildlife programmes are very popular and a big are a big money earner for the BBC. But we looked at it in term. I would look at it in terms of how were they thinking their audience would react what would their expectation of the audience desire be? And you, you both pander to your idea of what that desire is. And by doing that, you reinforce any existing ideas your audience has. It's like any form of stereotyping. So you stereotype a particular nationality. Yep. So, you know, in... British comedy 40, 50 years ago, you get stereotyping of black people, of Irish people, of all sorts of people Mm -hmm. in a very pejorative way. And you can do the same with animals. So you have good animals, you have bad animals. Yep. Lions throughout history, despite being very dangerous to man, have generally, not always, but generally been presented as noble courageous they live in what if you don't know the detail greatly can be seen as family groups mm-hmm. with the male protecting the female who looks after the cubs right you know very easy to present not complex and they i mean they used there's this expression i used to be um a rugby coach i'm a qualified rugby coach as well and when i was coaching rugby I particularly coached the forwards, the big, tough guys who bash the hell out of each other. Um, and I had this principle, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. And that's what a lot of editors will think when they are presenting what are very complex wildlife or environmental issues to their audience. Mm. So lions, good guys, elephants, absolutely great guys pandas wonderful what about hyenas no scavengers nasty dirty smelly look at the lion king and they think what does our audience already think about them Mm -hmm. will they react against us if we present something that is not what we think the audience is expecting so that's in their minds so you choose a charismatic animal, yep. you choose an individual that looks particularly good or around which you can weave a story and then you weave the story. So for example, in the dynasties' ones on the lions, it was this particular lioness, I think they called her Charm, who was the oldest, allegedly wisest lion in this small pride. They hadn't got any pride males. They'd died or moved out and no other pride males have moved in so charm had to look after the pride
1: right
2: it, it was almost like a soap opera you know this single mother struggling to get by and look after her children she's got two nearly grown-up sons so there were a couple of i think two to three year old male lions and the program ignored the fact that at that age they're totally capable of hunting And in a lot of prides, they would have been kicked out of the prides by the resident male. And this concept of dynasties therefore doesn't work, just as Mm. the the whole concept of the Lion King doesn't work, because the father will kick out the son, not evil Uncle Scar, but uh, Mufasa would have kicked out Simba as soon as he got to two to three years old and kicked him out fairly violently if necessary. And that sort of thing is ignored because it's not what they think their audience might want to hear on what will sell. So what you find, for example, is the BBC documentaries on things like lions. They may have the element of conflict where a new male comes in. It doesn't happen in dynasties, but I think it happened in Big Cat Diary, for example, where new males come in, they force out the old pride male, possibly kill the old pride male. They may, usually try and kill any young cubs to bring the females back, back into, into season so they can mate with them so that happens and bbc ones sell particularly well but there are some that are far more violent that concentrate much more on that there's a, a south african couple derek and beverly Joubert, who who work in botswana right. and they really really very very violent films about lion prides in Botswana and one particular one about a five-member I think it was male coalition that kills the males of several other prides and they get watched you find them coming up every now and again on say National Geographic channels but they don't in, in my view, get the same audience share cool. as ones that present lions. Yes, mm. violent, courageous, but basically something that you admire. Whereas when you watch some of these, these other ones, you just think, whoa, that really is incredibly nasty because there are right. what I find almost gratuitous scenes of violence against the Cubs by the males that I think, You know, I've seen (laughs) nature read in tooth and claw uh, very close up. But even some of those, I thought, whoa, (laughs) you know, what is the audience going to think of this? So it's, you know, they think, and the the same with news editors, with the whole Cecil thing, what was going to sell was the death of this magnificent lion. And what you wanted to tell was a simple story. So you would go to Born Free, for example who were very strongly criticising trophy hunting and the killing of Cecil. It's what they're there for. They're exactly. an animal rights advocacy group. Right. But they were too often treated in the media, not as an advocacy group, but as the expert voice on lions. Instead of going to somebody from, whether it's Wild Crew, though they did interview Andy Lubridge and David McDonald at various times, uh, but nowhere near as much as people from thing, groups like Born Free, who were stressing the, the anti-hunting line. And people in Britain will look at that and think, well, why would anyone want to kill that lion? Sure. And therefore, the newspapers pander to that. And by pandering to that, they then increase this image of the importance of an individual animal.
1: So let's talk about that consequence then, you know, because that's the ultimate game here, right, is, you know, the consequence of these soap operas to the conservation of the species and bringing sort of, as you just mentioned, trophy hunting into the picture, we know that trophy hunting is not the be all and end all tool for wildlife management but it is a very important tool in very rural areas in Africa as well as around the world to conserving wildlife. And now you've got this dichotomy in which you've got these documentaries being created that create these anthropomorphic situations, soap operas as we've been talking about, and the audience that's receiving this, that's digesting it, that's planting these these images into their brains, then sees trophy hunting and goes, oh my God, you're killing the family. And we get this uproar, we get this backlash, which is stop that. And I, I guess uh, maybe it's just your opinion on how do we change that, that, that consequence narrative on the back end when it ties to the conservation of wildlife?
2: I mean, it's very difficult because, again, if you look at most wildlife documentaries, if humans appear in them, they appear as a threat. So you will get, it's very, I think, tangentially mentioned in the Dynasties series in relation to lions, of the possibility of conflict between the prides in the Masai Mara and Maasai herders who live along the boundaries outside the boundaries of the park but do sometimes encroach into the park
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and so humans only ever really appear as a distant and somewhat intangible threat and almost as intruders into the national uh, sorry the natural world that they shouldn't be there, animals were there before and i often see this and get this if i debate on social media with people who do not like trophy hunting or do not like sometimes the necessity of culling problem animals Yeah, animals of,
1: the humans shouldn't be there there's too many humans let's start killing humans um you're absolutely right it is it is the it is the image of humans being a threat to the ecosystem and wildlife versus the reverse which is the integration of humans in that landscape to the benefit
2: of wildlife. Yes and that never gets presented. I've never seen on British television. Maybe there are documentaries but I've never seen them and I've looked for them. On for example the successes of the Namibian community conservancy programs. Instead, if you do get humans, it's humans as a threat. Humans killing lions or killing cheetah or leopards or in India, tigers, because there has been some sort of conflict. And normally the conflict will be blamed totally on the humans, but they've co-evolved in those areas. Maasai communities have lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And before that, other human communities and then hominid communities lived there. They're not new. And they've lived side by side with nature, with animals. And as soon as you start treating the human as an intruder, you then say the only solution to human wildlife conflict is to move out the humans. They're already excluded from most national parks. You move them further out. They shouldn't be there. Expand the national parks and exclude more humans. So where do these people go? They've got to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that in itself can increase human wildlife conflict. You had the situation, it's occurred in Masai Mara, it occurred in Amboseli in Kenya, of when people were excluded from the parks, or parks were expanded into areas that had previously been used for grazing by pastoral communities, you then got not poaching of animals for meat or ivory or rhino horn, but killing of animals as a political protest against the loss of land, because the people have to survive as well. And as soon as you, you take this view that people have no right to be there, you also create the groundwork that therefore you don't have to find ways of mitigating the conflict, of limiting the conflict, of increasing human tolerance for animals. So going back to the Namibian example, after independence in 1990, they began to set up community conservancies. And this was on land, particularly in Damara land, but also in other areas outside the protected national parks where there was still some wildlife and where people were mainly pastoralists. Because it was too arid for crop cultivation, Mm -hmm. but cattle in particular could survive there, and particularly if you could dig boreholes to provide them with water but there was still wildlife there. So how did you square the circle of having, you know, the two circles, wildlife and humans, people with livestock? The answer was the community conservancies, where on community owned land, the community can decide the mix of land use on that land. So they will have cattle. They will have pastoralists running cattle. They will have Mm ecotourism, but they may also have trophy hunting. And by combining them, you bring in enough income that people are able, for example, to protect their livestock better from lions, protect their water pumps better from elephants, and because they're getting a direct benefit that they feel either in can be monetary income can be support for their livestock industries in various ways. They see that money comes from the presence of livestock.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They tolerate. So when I was in Damara in Northwest Namibia, September, 2019, and I've not been able to go back again because of COVID sadly, But there, I met a farmer. Fairly small scale pastoralist, had about 30 or 40 cattle, some goats, had a small house, you know, miles from any other habitation. Before money was coming in through the conservancy to help him, he would lose cattle to lions, hyenas, perhaps the leopards as well. His water pump would be smashed. Buy elephants because he would have to buy diesel fuel which was expensive to run the pump to pump the water for his livestock. He could only run it a certain amount of hours per day. His livestock would drink the water, elephants would move in because there were no fences and they would drink the remains of the water but want more and they could smell the water. They've yep. got very, very good sense of smell, And they would smash the pumps and the pipes trying to get to that water. Money from the conservancy, some from ecotourism, some from hunting, has enabled that farmer to put up a very strong wire cattle crawl, cattle enclosure, surrounded by what's called shade cloth. So at night, he herds, and I was there when he was herding his cattle in, and he said, once they get in there, and he shut them in, Mm. they cannot get out. Unlike a thornbush fence, if the cattle smell or hear hyenas or lions, they might try and stampede. But with the shade cloth, they can't see them, and you don't get this attempt to stampede out of the enclosure, which is often when predators get them. And the predators cannot get in.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: too high for a lion or certainly a hyena. Hyenas can't jump very high at all, but too high for any of the predators there to get in. Therefore, they're protected. And as long as he gets them in at night, he said he's only lost one, he'd only lost one in the last few months when he couldn't get it in at night and a lion got it. But he said his losses had been cut massively, and he was very pleased about that. Mm. And he had a solar-powered water pump, which could work 24 hours a day because it was powered by the sun. So, as soon, like with a stopcock in a toilet system, as soon as the level of water in the trough dropped below a certain level, the pump would kick in and refill it. And he said, elephants can come along and drink as much as they like, and then move off because the trough keeps refilling. Sure. So he said, my cattle can drink, the elephants can drink, they don't smash up the pump. And he said, this is, it's not perfect, there is still conflict, but it is much, much better. And if you removed the income, say from trophy hunting, he wouldn't get so much support. And also they find that if there is a problem lion or like for of the, the problem elephant, that animal may have to be taken out because it is a danger to people. Yep. It might be killing livestock, destroying farm infrastructure, like water pumps. What choice is there? People have got to live as That's well fair. as animals. If you don't do that, the people turn completely against the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can do that in a way that removes a problem animal humanely not like poisoning or trap snaring or whatever but somebody shoots it it dies i realize a lot of people will not like that at all but this is a fact of life if you do that and it then brings in say fifty thousand dollars for the community conservancy that is fifty thousand dollars that is used to conserve not just an elephant not just elephants or lions but wildlife as a whole and more particularly and this is what is also ignored with this concentration on individual animals or even individual charismatic species is you maintain the habitat right and when you've got the habitat you've got wildlife so in Namibia, a recent survey carried out estimated there are getting on for 24,000 elephants in right. Namibia. Right. This is disputed by some animal rights groups who try and claim <laughs> there are only 5,000 right. and they We've seem to the forget elephants move about. Elephants don't live like us in one place, they move. But this latest survey that has been authenticated by people who are strongly against hunting, like the Kenyan-based elephant expert, Ian Douglas Hamilton. He's authenticated this Namibian survey as having used the right methods. Nearly 24,000 elephants. In 1990, at Independence, after the ravages committed, particularly by the South African army and South African politicians who used to go and hunt with no regulation in namibia they had six thousand elephants right the number has quadrupled and one of the major reasons for that is the conservancy system and it's why their rhino population is doing well white and black rhino and even the lion population the desert adapted lions early 1990s possibly as low as single figures certainly in the low 10s or 20s now may not seem a huge number but it's a massive increase 150 possibly even 175 right such that the late garth owen smith who was the one of the people who encouraged the protection and monitoring of the desert adapted lions before his death fairly recently he was saying beginning to worry the desert adapted lions may have reached their carrying capacity there. Mm-hmm. And so they are beginning to spread out because they disperse, because they, in the desert areas, they have much, much bigger territories than say in the Serengeti or Kruger. Yeah. Because they have to cover a wider area to hunt. Sure. Because in sure. these areas, there is wildlife, but the densities are much lower. Mm-hmm. So all these things have to be taken into account.
1: Well, I'm just, uh, next time you go to Namibia and Damara land, we are storytellers. And that guy's story, that farmer's story is exactly the kind of story we need to tell. And that is the consequence of hunting. It's not, you know, going with a hunter and showing him killing something. It's the, it's the action, right? It's the guy who benefits on the ground, the guy that can build that wire crawl. It's the, it's the, you know, Garth Owen Smith, and, and it's, you just sort of brought back a memory in my brain. I was lucky to uh, be under the tutelage. It wasn't his student, but uh, Norman Owen Smith at uh, the Department of Zoology in front in South Africa was one of my professors. Um, so you absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, one of the things and it's a huge hurdle and it's a huge obstacle is the bias that media portrays hunting to be and the influence of humans on wildlife systems and so you know that's one of our missions our mission is to tell the truth and to convey the truth and people like that farmer show the truth Um, so man i appreciate your time i really do i i know we could speak for hours probably (laughs) about this and uh, i know that i've taken a couple of notes i need to i need to see if i can get your book ivory power and poaching Um, So I would encourage everyone to look up Keith Somerville. Um, The article that we talk about is called Soap Operas Will Not Wash for Wildlife. Uh, And it was published in People in Nature and the British Ecological Society. So give that a a read. And um, anything else, anywhere else that they
2: can find you? Well, I also have a book Humans and Lions and Humans and Hyenas. Humans and Hyenas are a much
1: better read than Humans and Lions, right?
2: uh, Well, (laughs) I I think they're both both pretty good reads, but I, I had more, in a way, more of a purpose. The Humans and Lions came out of writing about the whole Cecil thing. Okay. And then looking at what has been the relationship of Humans and Lions back millions of years to hominids and early... Species of lion that then evolved into the lions we see today, and how coexistence and conflict went hand in hand, and how in some areas coexistence has worked remarkably well. And in fact, in the area where they were nearly wiped out completely, India, the ability of local people in the Gir forest in Gujarat to coexist with lions has meant that the asian lion still survives right numbers have increased from about again from tens or twenties at the beginning of the 19th century up to about 700 now and they've got the problem now they've got to move some of the lions out out of there because they have nowhere to disperse to because their their habitat is completely surrounded by
1: Correct. densely
2: inhabited hum, human areas in gujarat but the gujarat state government says these are our lions gujarat is the only state with lions we're not going to give up our lions to another state in india it's not oh, even right. outside india they don't want other states within india to have lions because they are gujarat is the lion state and while they have a the the current prime minister modi is from gujarat The chances of moving the lions out of Gujarat, even though it is a biological necessity, are pretty low. But that's an example where the local community, the Maldari pastoralist community, have been amazingly tolerant of lions. And the way that, um, well before Indian independence, the local ruler, the local Sultan, he hunted lions, but he also then saw the need to protect them. And if he hadn't have started protecting them, there would be no wild Asian lions. This was a local initiative by a local noble and landowner and tolerance by a local community that was then eventually taken up by the British colonial authorities and then by independent India. And now they've got to go that step further and say, right, We've got to move them. There are other national parks in India mm-hmm. that that have the habitat and the prey base for lions. And if we keep them all in one small area, you know, it's at that saying, you shouldn't keep all your eggs in one basket. It's a peninsula by the sea. Were it to be flooded,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the lions would go. Mm-hmm. Were there to be a serious outbreak of... Anthrax. A major disease, the lions go. Yep. You move them out. You move, say... A couple of hundred out and put them in different areas. You also help over time having a more diverse genetic structure of the population.
1: Yep. Well, no, it's a it's certainly fascinating, and there's stories to be told. India is just this myriad of stories in terms of human wildlife conflict. You know, the the burgeoning tiger population, burgeoning lion population, burgeoning leopard population, and the fact that there is zero consumptive use occurring in india on any species uh so keith i really appreciate you i uh, i look forward to the next time we get together because i know that um i'm sure you'll be pushing out some stuff that we would take interest in in the near future and look forward to another conversation with you so i really appreciate the time that you've given us today
2: maybe we should have one when the if and when the British and Irish Lions go to South Africa. Re-export Ooh. the Lions for the rugby. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it might we'll be a slightly
2: it. more conflictual um, <laughs> conversation.
1: Well, well, we all know that South Africa's going to beat the Lions. So it's ah, not well, there's not much to debate. I, I,
2: I, sus- I suspect you're right. It depends on, on, on the pick. I have one, one more story. And you're, you can record this if you wish, if you're still recording. Have you been following the, uh, how can one put it, the the career of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Uh,
1: slightly. I don't follow he it intently.
2: A colourful and curious and not entirely trustworthy character. And I have a story about his real lack of. Serious intelligence and avoidance of unnecessary conflict. Hmm. I played rugby against him (laughs) 20 years ago. So not when he was at university or a schoolboy. 20 years ago in a veterans game. So it was all over Mm 35-year-olds. I was captaining my local club veterans side against a team from the newspaper, the Daily Telegraph and boris johnson played in that team in the front row
1: okay were you in the front row too
2: yes i was loose head prop and he was the tight head prop opposite me every scrum he charged in like a wounded buffalo and tried to headbutt me (laughs) every scrum because i was loose head so my left arm Correct. He's down there, but I can sway out a bit. I saw him coming, I swayed out, and as his head came in there, I lifted my shoulder and smacked him in the ear. <laughs> we must have had, because it's a veteran's game, so there was a lot of knock-on. Argy-bargy, right. Balls, and argy-bargy, yeah. Oh, we were, our, our name was the Harrow Silverbacks. <laughs> um, and we must have had 20 scrums, at least. Every scrum he did this, every scrum, he failed to headbutt me, and I smacked him in the ear. (laughs) Got up at the end of the game, and he came over to me, and he said, you, 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 my man. Look at my ear. And it was huge and bleeding. (laughs) And he said, you bit me. You bit me. I said, Boris, I didn't bite you. I hit you. Every time you tried to headbutt me, I hit you. But you kept doing it. Oh, that's all right. Then let's go for a beer. And I just thought... This man's an idiot.
1: Well, you are probably one of the only individuals that can have a story that, maybe not the only individual, but the only one that I know of that has said, I have legitimately hit the prime minister, the current prime minister of of the UK, uh, several times in the rugby game. I can't (laughs) think of a better way to uh, end the podcast. Okay, then. Good to speak to you. Good chatting. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's
0: Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Four in the morning,